ladies and gentlemen. I'd like to take this moment to say thank you for listening to the Real Rescue Podcast. It means a lot to me that you enjoy these stories as much as I do. Since the start of this podcast, we've had a lot of support from all over the world. It has been amazing. Now, we have companies joining our team that also want to say thank you for all that you are doing out there standing the watch. These companies are offering discounts on their products as a way to support the rescue community and those tuning into the Real Rescue Podcast. Just go to therealrescue.com, click on Sponsors, and see these incredible offers for yourself. This episode of the Real Rescue Podcast is brought to you by Breeze Eastern, the world's only dedicated helicopter hoist and winch provider. Access. Because when lives are at stake and conditions are challenging, Clear communication is of the utmost importance. SR3 Rescue Concepts, because you don't know what you don't know. And Versalips, to be your best, you need to squat your best. Breeze Eastern, they dedicate themselves to our helicopter rescue world. Since the very first helicopter rescue in November of 1945, Breeze Eastern has designed and manufactured superior rescue hoist solutions. While much of the technology and the unique mission requirements have changed over the past 75 years, their commitment to the rescuers, the operators, and those being rescued has not. Contact them today by visiting them at breeze-eastern.com. The Axness PNG Wireless ICS System can bring cutting-edge wireless intercommunication system technology to any aircraft. The PNG system can be fully integrated into an existing ICS system or can be carried on and off as a mobile base station. They can go anywhere, at any time, on any aircraft. Plus, with the strongest and most robust waterproof handheld on the market, this system can take a hit and keep working. Their wireless intercom systems are designed to enhance situational awareness through improved communication capability. This system brings superior noise canceling technology to eliminate rotor wash and engine noise from your ICS. The Axness PNG wireless system is currently deployed in more than 1,800 public safety, air ambulance, and search and rescue aircraft worldwide. I have personally used the Axness system in four different countries and on five different airframes. It is awesome. If you want more information, Contact them today at axnes.com. That's A-X-N-E-S.com. You just make sure you tell them Quinny sent me. SR3 Rescue Concepts is a training company that can help your helicopter training. They train daytime, nighttime, aerial firefighting, hoist, long line, fast rope, rappel, and more. They can assist your program with standardization and safety checks or just an FAA annual refresher. With the certified flight instructor pilots and experienced crew, they are ready to help your agency keep up to date with current techniques, rules, regulations, and equipment. Plus, right now, SR3 is offering 10% off anything in their web store with the promo code, all capital letters, REALRESCUE, R-E-A-L-R-E-S-Q. Plus, they are offering another 10% from their partners, Petzl, and their equipment, all you gotta do is send an email to info at sr3rescueconcepts.com 
mention this podcast, The Real Rescue Podcast, and they'll take care of the rest. And Versalist. When you're at the gym working on your squats, building your leg strength for the next rescue mission, depth matters. If you're like me, getting below parallel on your squats is tough. Well, allow me to introduce Versalifts Heel Inserts. These gems have become one of my new favorite accessories in my gym bag. Simply place them into your regular training shoe, either on top or underneath the insole, and bam! You've got a heel lift benefit of a weightlifting shoe, but the comfort and flexibility of your regular trainer. So the next time your workout just has heavy squats, grab your V2 strength inserts. Or how about a run, pull up, push up, air squat, and another run? Grab your V2 endurance insert. Or my own personal workout of running, clusters, and ring muscle up. Grab your original V2 inserts and go crush it. Check them out today at vlifts.com or on Instagram at Versalift. And when you're ready to get a few pair of your own, make sure you get your 10% off with the Real Rescue discount code. Squat well, friends. Coming up next in this episode of The Real Rescue, we are joined by a pilot retired from the Delaware State Police. He did some amazing work while he was there, and he came on to tell some of his stories. Now, I wanted to tell you one story because I had an opportunity to work with him for about two weeks when I went down for a training class. Well, in the middle of that training class, we had the weekend off, and we ended up down at the beach. So in Delaware, which I thought was really cool, is you could drive right down to the beach, so you got all your cars parked up, gates open and whatnot, while the fishing poles are in the water and everybody's like just kind of hanging out for the day. Well, all of a sudden, one of the fishing poles goes taut. Then another one goes taut. And we're like, all right, this is great, man, fish on. So we end up reeling it in. Well, it turns out we ended up catching a huge stingray. And I kid you not, it was like, it had to have been at least three feet wide uh, when we brought it up on the shore. I was like, oh, Jesus, crazy. So as we're trying to get the hooks out, we got people yelling at us like, oh my God, don't want to hurt it. And we're like, we're not trying to hurt it, lady. We're trying to save it. It's all good. Well, then one of the guys got stung and he had to go to the hospital. But at the end of the day, we ended up saving the stingray, getting all the hooks out, send it back to the ocean. It was pretty awesome. Anyway, please welcome our next guest and the rest of his stories, Mr. Bob McMahon. My name is Jason Quinn. I am United States Coast Guard Rescue Swimmer number 500. These are my rescues and rescues from those of us that put our lives on the line every day so others may live. This is The Real Rescue Podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to The Real Rescue. Today, I've got a guy. Uh, Delaware State Police Officer, also a volunteer firefighter. I had the opportunity to meet him like we're in a training class in Delaware with my man, Bob Watson. Shout out to Bob. But today we've got a pilot, mentor, instructor, three, 13, wait, how many hours? 13,000 flight hours? 13,000. 13,000 13, flight hours as a pilot. Oh, I love it. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Bob McMahon. What's up, Bob? How are you, buddy? Hi. Hello. It's good to see you. How's things? It's good to see you. Uh, things are great. Good. I'm good. Down in, I'm down in Naples, Florida. I'm living in paradise. I'm retired. And things are great. Beautiful. As And it's much deserved because you uh, you were doing it for a long time up there in Delaware. So it's cool. 
<laughs> it's good. It's good. Um, real quick before I go too far, I I want to uh, I want to recognize you because I can. You retired out of uh, Delaware State Police, and you have been uh, inducted into the Delaware Aviation Hall of Fame. Congratulations! Thank and you. I just want to read a quick blurb out of this. So this is right out of, uh, it's a DAHF.org. And it says, Robert McMahon, Delaware State Police pilot, flight instructor, 3,000 3, flight. Well, I don't know if it says 3,000 flying hours, but you had 13, yeah? We'll make sure we have That's that. That's as an instructor, 3,000 oh. 3, flight hours as an instructor. God, dang, that's a lot too. Holy cow. Uh, you also developed the Delaware air rescue team known as the dart team uh three valor four life-saving awards incredible robert bob mcmahon served the state of delaware honorably for 41 years the majority of the time was spent working in the aviation section of delaware state police the dsp over his career with the dsp bob flew over 13,000 hours in rotary and fixed-wing aircrafts, including 3,000 hours of flight time as a flight instructor. There it is. And then uh, three, two more paragraphs, three more paragraphs later, Bob helped to develop and implement the Delaware Air Rescue Team, known as the DART team. The DART involved using, using the helicopter to safely perform helicopter hoist or short-haul rescues in confined or remote access locations. He acted as the liaison to numerous fire departments and lifeguard stations. Bob, this is awesome. So congratulations for that one. This is awesome. Thank you. I love it. You're Thank welcome. You. You're welcome. So thanks for coming on here and being willing to tell a story or two. I, this is this yeah. is exciting for me. So uh, to give a little more background to this, you and I actually did meet. I came down with Priority One Air Rescue, Bob Watson and Will Milam, both separate times. And uh, you and I ended up doing some flying and the training. And I remember doing off-center pickoffs off like a container and and just tagline. And, and you guys were such on point down there. And I'm like, oh, my gosh. Just the stories that came out of that place from you guys were amazing. So I'm so happy to have you on. Well, you know, one of, one of the things you brought up was Priority One Air Rescue. And, I, you know, I, I feel I have to remember Richard Megair, Rich Megs. Yes, sir. He's the first guy that I met from Priority One Air Rescue. And he, of course, you know, led to me meeting Brad, Dennis, Bob, Will, uh, Traveris out of Hawaii, and you. Um, it was it was wonderful. It was a wonderful time. Uh, and we were really lucky because I think we were one of the first actual customers of Priority One. Um, the story there, which if you're interested to hear, it's a pretty good story. And you right. may want me to save it. You may want me to save that. Okay, will, right. we can save it. We can save it. Yeah. I'll, I'll leave it yeah. up to you. No, you know what? Yeah. Let's save it. Let's save it. Because let's get started yeah. with a little background about you. So yeah. how did you get into the uh, police department, pilot, search and rescue? How did that all happen with you? Well, uh, you know, I, I have to preface it all by saying that I have even though I'm a police officer, I have the mentality of a fireman. 
And um, I, you know, I've how always... that's such an oxymoron. I'm just gonna throw that out there. <laughs> well, in, on, in New York, it, in New York, it is because in New York they don't talk to each other, right? <laughs> but, but it was always my goal to make sure that the police talked to the firemen, and especially when I get into helicopters. But um, I started out as a Baltimore City police, and we say police in Baltimore City. Um, Stayed there for two years, moved up to Delaware State Police, which I was from Delaware. I went to the University of Delaware and I, I grew up in Delaware, although I was actually born in New Jersey. And and I guess I credit the small town I was born in, in New Jersey to my fireman attitude in that my uncle Frank was the local hero of, of the firehouse. And he uh, used to drive his truck down the street I lived on en route to fires. And I remember as a kid, just loving that fire truck and loving the idea was my uncle Frank. And, you know, from there, it was just the natural process. I, um, I grew up uh, playing football. I loved football. I played a little bit at the University of Delaware um, and I became a team player. I, I like team sports and, you know, there's nothing more team oriented than rescue. It, it rescue right. is a team oriented sport and I just take to it. Like I take the football. I, I love it. And, uh, so, you know, being a police officer, having this mindset of, uh, being a volunteer fireman, uh, seeing the, the helicopter that the state had, um, getting a ride in it, you know, when I was a police officer, I just decided I'm going to fly that. And I went out and took uh, private flight lessons became an airplane pilot. And then the state said, we'll teach you to be a helicopter pilot. That and, is so you know, cool. I went, I went, and, and that's why, you know, I'm really privileged with the state. The state said, you can do anything you want and we will pay for it. And I said, well, I want, you know, first off, I said, I want to be an instructor. I really like to share my flying with other people. They said, go ahead, go do it. We'll pay for it. And then wow. I said, well, I said, I want to fly uh, not only as an instructor, I want to be an instrument instructor. They said, go ahead, get your, get your rating. Um, I said, I want to be an ATP, which is an airline transport pilot. They said, take the airplane, spend as much time as you need studying, go do it. And then, you know, I got my ATP in the helicopter. So, you know, it was a, it was a progression. And what I have to do more than anything else is be thankful for the people along the way that kept saying, yes, you know, you want to do this, go do it. We'll pay for it. Uh, wow. So, you know, before long, here I am, I'm flying a helicopter and I'm out there with this mindset of being a fireman. So I'm listening to the scanner and things are happening. They're happening all the time. So you just go to, you know, you, you, when I first started flying a helicopter, I was by myself. It was just me. I was, I was out there in a helicopter on patrol. Didn't even have a partner. Sometimes <laughs> I did. Sometimes I, you know, sometimes I was flying with a with another pilot, but we didn't have paramedics at first. Um, and then this really forward-looking looking guy, Don Berkeley, my sergeant, he decides, hey, we're gonna we're gonna copy the Arizona State Police. We're gonna get medics in our helicopter. And boy, the rest is history. Uh, just unbelievable. Once we got those medics, <laughs> it was just 
one call after another. We could fly all night, all day long. And I always said, you know, I'll fly for food. You don't, you don't really have to pay me. And, and it turned out they were paying me, you know, they were, yeah, they were right? paying me. I was like, I would, I would love to say that I would do it for free as well, which I probably would, but I don't want to tell anybody that really, because <laughs> I also like to get paid. So, <laughs> you know, my, my wife and I like to, you know, do stuff together and that costs something. So I need to get, you know, but I, I'm with you. I would, my gosh, I love doing this job. It's ridiculous. Yeah. Yeah. Very so, cool. you know, pretty much, you know, there's, there's a lot of stories that come later that come after what i just paraphrased you know but that's how i got involved and uh, and the the most interesting part of getting involved in delaware um, they were very progressive with aviation and almost anything you asked can we do this yes can we do this yes do you mind if we do this no we don't mind do it you know um it was a very progressive attitude um, the state police really supported us and we had a lot of fun doing it that is so cool that's so cool well done i mean getting all the way into it and you get 41 years of doing this my gosh you know like I, well you know you, you, i'm not you I'm think about the people there, bob halfway well, that's it you think <laughs> you think about the people you meet and and it, again, it's 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 something, you know, it goes from one guy to the next guy. But when it's all over, you look back and you think, oh, my gosh, you know, we really did something pretty cool, you know. Uh, and, you know, I have to say the highlight of one of the big highlights of my flying was meeting Bob Watson. And uh, I know Bob you're. Watson. I know, I know you're going to interview him on a podcast and literally I can't wait to hear him tell his stories uh, because he's very humble. He doesn't no. tell too many stories. Um, you know, I've been asking him for like two years, just, just so you know. <laughs> yeah. It's coming. Well, it's coming. It's going to happen. I am really looking forward to it. I'm going to let him know too. <laughs> <laughs> uh, hey, hey, Bob, Bob said you need to come on. That's exactly how the conversation is going to go, too. <laughs> yeah. 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 Oh, yeah. Yeah. I love it. Well, I'll tell you what, Bob, I, like 41 years. I know it's a little stretch and I know it's kind of back in the day, but do you remember your very first rescue? Well, yeah, uh, I do. Um, and to tell you the truth, this is this is one that I've written about simply because it, it kind of in a way, it bothers me, um, and and I don't want to pretend to have any like PTSD or anything like that. It's just so, something that it's so vivid in my mind that I, I can't you know I can't think about it without kind of going off into a, like space. It's, and and it it's funny because here you know being a volunteer fireman and um, being a police officer, being a helicopter pilot. My first rescue that I think about, that I that I hold on to, was on my day off. I wasn't working, and oh, wow. I wasn't flying. Uh, I was on the beach with my girlfriend, and um, the Delaware beaches in the early season can be pretty barren. There's there's no lifeguards, and in a lot of uh, a lot of 
places on the beach, the closest person's a couple hundred yards away. And this one particular day, um, we were on the beach, uh, my girlfriend and I, and I, she was just sunning and I decided I was going in the water and it was rough. It was, it was a rough day. I think it was like a, a post-storm day. And so I'm, I'm out there, I'm getting knocked around pretty good. And while I'm getting knocked around and having fun, I, I see about 20 yards down from me, a woman holding a very young baby. And I'm, I'm immediately concerned. I mean, I can see what's gonna happen. It's, it's written all over the situation. This woman is gonna lose this baby in the surf because it's rough. She's out up to her waist and she's getting walloped by waves. And I'm thinking to myself, what is she doing? And you know how every so often waves are cyclical. A big one comes along that you're not expecting. Yeah. And a big one came along and knocked me down. It hit me in the back because I was watching her. And when I came back up, I didn't see her and I didn't see the baby. And I knew what happened. I had, I just, I had been waiting for it. I knew it was going to happen. And she's a good 20 yards away from me. And I thought the only thing I can do is make myself as big as possible, stretch my arms out, stretch my legs out. That baby is going to be coming by me. And I don't know if it's going to be close to me or if it's going to be far away from me, but it's coming out. It's coming back out without her. And, it, and you know what a rip is. And this oh, yeah. was a pretty good rip and it was pulling everything, sucking everything. And just out of the corner of my eye, I saw a toe. And I mean, it was just amazing. Just the toe. That's all I saw. And I grabbed for it and it's moving, you know, it's moving away from me. It's moving fast. And I get an ankle. And I pulled that thing out and it was like rebirthing that child. It was amazing. I pulled the ankle and the whole kid came out of the water. And the woman was still, she was still 20 feet away, looking the wrong way, screaming her head off. She lost part of her bathing suit. She was yelling, my baby, my baby, my baby. And I've got this kid in my arms and still getting hit by waves, but, but you know, standing. Um, I've got my back to the waves. And I'm holding this kid and I'm thinking, Jesus Christ, Jesus, I just saved this kid. I really did. I mean, I was thinking there ain't, there's no way there was nobody else. If it wasn't me, it was nobody. And so I started, I walked up on the beach holding the kid. The woman's still screaming her head off. She's running around and she comes, she sees me and she runs over and she grabs her kid and she takes off. And I, I was I didn't even know if the kid was breathing. I had no idea. I was so, I was so worked up. And the, um, the woman runs back to her towel. She's only sitting about 20 feet from us. And my girlfriend is still sunning herself. Never saw it. Never had any idea what happened. I walked up. I sat down. I was a little bit out of breath. I was a little bit shocked, really. And the woman picked up all her stuff and she left. And I've often thought, you know, through the years, that baby's now 45 years old. That baby's, I mean, this was 40 something years ago, 40, you know, 43, 44 years ago. And I've often thought many, many times I thought, you know, that kid's walking around as a 40 year old adult for one reason only. I saw that toe. That's the only reason. And that is the, every other rescue I've ever made after that. And I got to tell you, I was involved in hundreds of incidents. 
every one of them meant nothing to me compared to that. You'll see on that award thing, I've got, I got a, one guy used to call me the South American general when he saw me in uniform. He said, what are you, the South American general? What's all the pins? What's the awards? All that stuff. I said, you know, not one of them matters after that race. That's the most important thing I ever did. And it was, oh it, it is it's the most important thing I ever did. Uh, I mean, there's a few, you know, like you read that thing, life-saving awards and all that. Yeah, but maybe the people would have lived if I wasn't there. But that kid would not be here today if I wasn't there. Yeah, no. And that is the, that is the one rescue I can look at for 13,000 hours of flying and 41 years of working nights countless nights of answering the fire alarm you know the when the when the pager goes off that's the one thing i can look at and say i did that nobody else did that so that's my one rescue that's it i mean i got a couple other others i wrote down but they all pale to that for me you know they mean nothing that's that's incredible that was your very first one as well like your first one well or just first you have to, water rescue you you have to understand that you know if they all run together uh, yeah true, true i would say yeah. i would say that that was in the beginning of my career you know i can't say that you know there was a, a couple things where i got a, a, an award before i was in aviation you know i can't say that you know that they were that this was my very first but let's just say this is the one that everything else answers to you know this is the one you know the rest of them pale to that one you know whatever they are they they may have come before they may have come after but they weren't as important as that one bob that is awesome oh my gosh oh it's nice to tell that story i never really told that story you know to this day that girlfriend to this day that girlfriend she has no idea that that even happened I wound up and I wound up marrying her and having three kids with her, and she still doesn't have any idea that that happened that day. So. <laughs> well, I hate to tell you, we she might know now. I mean, <laughs> in fact, well, I think right about now she'll hit pause and say, "Bob, Bob, what, what the? <laughs> wow." I, you know what? It, I can see the whole thing too. I can actually see you going and sitting down next to your girlfriend at the time, a little out of breath, taking it all in, like, what the heck just happened? Looking over yeah. and seeing that lady getting up and freaking out because she can't believe just what happened and just leaving. No, thank yeah. you. No, oh my gosh. Oh, n- nothing. I, just- I honestly, I don't think she ever saw me. She wouldn't, she wouldn't recognize me from, from anybody else. I was just some guy holding her baby. Oh my lord, that is awesome. Yeah. Well, thanks for giving me the opportunity to tell it because it, it actually feels um, good to talk about it. Yeah. yeah. Are you kidding me? That's <laughs> freaking badass, dude. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. 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 Well done, sir. Well done. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Ah, Bob, you can keep going all you want. I do want to give you a a, a little shout out, though, because you actually wrote 
three separate books. I know you're working on your fourth right now, which is amazing. Um, yes. Your first book was called The What? The Good Police. The Good Police. P O dash L O I C E. That's it. Nice. And yeah. You know, I, I, I toyed with calling it The Good Poe, P O E, Lease, because Edgar Allan Poe was a Baltimorean who was buried actually on the street. Oh in Baltimore. And most people from Baltimore know that Edgar Allan Poe is there, the monument, you know, and the fact that he was a Baltimorean. But um, other people that aren't from Baltimore wouldn't know, and they would look at POE and think, well, I don't know if this guy's a very good speller, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so I dropped the E. I took the That's E good. out. Yeah. All right, so what is in that book? Well, that's a book of short stories. And let me actually, I can read something to you real quick. It says a, a collection of stories from a 43 year career in public service. And then it just has a picture of me standing in front of the helicopter. And um, it, it tells little stories. It doesn't tell the one about the girl. That, that story is not in there. That's a rather private story. Um, it tells stories that won't get anybody in trouble. Doesn't mention any names. Um, very general and, you know, in text. And um, I talk about like in Baltimore City uh, as a, a very young police officer uh, being called to the scene of a burglary in progress. Really bad characters. Very, very bad characters. And uh, looking up and seeing a helicopter over the top of me and uh, realizing, oh my gosh, I'm right in the middle of this thing. And then a great big police dog comes out of a, a car. And I'm, I thought thinking to myself as a police officer, I didn't even know we had police dogs. You know, that's how <laughs> new I was. You know? uh, so, so, you know, I tell stories like that. Then I went to the state police and uh, went through the academy and, you know, there's, there's, certain stories in the academy that you tell and once again you're trying not to be too specific because you don't want the guys that you went to the police academy with mad at you um you know sometimes they're all very sensitive and you know you don't want to hurt their feelings so you got to try and tell the story get a point across and not get anybody pissed off at you so that's what that book's about i like yeah. that yeah that's yeah. good that's good and so then I had, you know, I had a couple comments from people that said they, they really kind of liked it, you know, the things that they liked. And I, I was always concerned. I was always interested to know well, what was it that, you know, you, you liked about it, you know, because I really liked the conversation part. Right? So we would talk about it and, and um, they'd say, but, you know, you don't mention anything about flying in there. And, and I said, well, you know, there might be a little bit about flying. They said, well, why don't you tell some of your flying stories? So I said, all right. So I I, that's when I wrote The Good High Lot. And I used, <laughs> and again, I used the hyphenation just to make it kind of a a part of the, like a series kind of. Yeah. Know? The so Good I, I write, High P.I. Lot. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I like so that. I, wrote, I, wrote, I wrote that and, you know, some people read it and they liked it. They thought it was good. They liked the stories. Um, I'm always interested in the feedback. Uh, and then 
my last one, and I'm not trying to sell any books here. I really don't care. If no, 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 no. Hey, hey, just shout but, it out. I, I, I didn't even know you had them, and now I do. So guess what? I'm going to go buy a book. My last one's really more for my family in that I had all this information on these, you know, warriors in our family from World War II and all this information about, uh, you know, uncles and aunts and one and one cousin that won the uh, 1960 Olympics gold medal for swimming, you know. So I thought, well, you know, I ought to put that in writing so that when my kids want to know when they grow up, hey, what did our family do? Where do I come from? So that's the good, that's, that's not the good anything. That's it's from Hugo to Robert. And it's about, it's about our family. And oh, that that's fun writing. Cool. Oh, yeah, that's great. Fun writing. You get yeah. to do the whole research on your family in the background, where it started, where you are now. I like that. Yeah. That's good stuff. Yep. It's pretty good. Yeah. Very cool. Very cool. Man, thank you. Thanks for letting me know those. I'm, I'll, I'll put a little screenshot up for everybody to see it and whatnot. Uh, but yeah, it'll be there. So yeah, that's good. All right, Bob, you know, I got to ask, like, I want to hear another rescue story because you guys in Delaware do some awesome stuff and <laughs> it's kind of interesting. So for those that don't know, it's a matter of fact, most people, if you were to ask them, Hey, where is Delaware? They'd be like, uh, what the heck is Delaware? <laughs> Maybe I'm exaggerating with that one, but there are a lot of people that couldn't pinpoint where I, Delaware I, is on the state map in america just saying well i, I think you're so, right yeah uh and, it's it's almost like think, rhode island like exactly. i didn't know there was a rhode island <laughs> and, a, and a lot of people and and believe me i've been in the aviation business you know i threw some rich people around and a lot of people are surprised that a small state at one time we had seven aircraft and oh my gosh uh, four, did you really four four yeah four helicopters always brand, always new helicopters and three aircraft and one particular day that i was very proud of because um, a lot of my students were flying the aircraft we had all seven of the aircraft flying and all seven doing missions um and and that's something people would say you know you know you're we might be in texas we might be in mississippi we, we could be anywhere and people would say, but you guys, you're like the smallest state. How can you have so many aircraft? <laughs> and again, it comes back to, which I think I started out by saying, the attitude and the leadership in Delaware was so pro-aviation, so pro-police. The legislature was extremely pro-police. Um, I don't know if they're that way now. Uh, you know, things have changed a lot. But I do know that Delaware uh, has three 429s and they're getting uh, another one. They're getting a fourth 429. And wow. the 429 is an excellent aircraft. It's an expensive aircraft. And I don't know if there's too many out outfits out there operate four 429s. Um, so well, I, I think it's growing now. Um, yeah, because I, I, I hear a lot of people or a lot of agencies. I know New York has one. Uh, down in Arizona, they've got a couple. Montana's got one, um, so I know they're they're around. But yeah, I like them. I like the four twenty nine. Yeah, the four twenty nine is is a a really good aircraft 
for a police organization that let's say is not going 30 miles offshore. Um, it, you know, it's twin engine. Um, Delaware does a lot of medevac with theirs. But you take where I live now, Collier County, they have a 429. They do police work um, and they do fabulous police work. They have the observer uh, seat in the back for the flare. Um, I don't know if, if they fly two pilots. I'm pretty sure they, they do. Their chief pilot is a retired New York City police officer. Um, I only remember Dennis? his first. Is De Dennis? Dennis? Yes. Ah, Dennis. I love Dennis. Yeah. Yes. When you talk to him, yes. just tell him I said hello. <laughs> well, I, there's a funny story with that. But, okay. Uh, <laughs> I'll, I'll make it quick. Um, we had a real bad hurricane here that everybody's aware of, Ian. And where I live, we're only about, oh, 20 miles south of where the eye hit. So after the storm, we had an unbelievable amount of Coast Guard, helicopter, aircraft, uh, police. Um, every three-letter agency you could think of was doing something in the area of where I live. We live right off the beach. Um, and there's a huge high-rise being built behind us. And, uh, and I'm talking about C-130s. I'm talking about UH-60s. Any kind of airplane you could think of was coming low level across our uh, complex, going over to the beach and then up toward Fort Myers. Um, and so one night I saw this aircraft do a low pass, which I call it. Um, but he, I mean, he was working. He wasn't doing anything illegal or dangerous. He was just, he was working. And I realized that the, the light bulb on this big crane, which is, has to be 300 feet, was, wasn't lit. And that concerned me a lot. And I thought, now, how do I report this without being a pain in the ass? Because, you know, I'm a retired guy. And as soon as you retire, nobody wants to hear from you. Right. So I thought, you know, hey, that guy's retired. We don't want to hear from him. But I wanted, I wanted the police to know that the light was out. And I thought, you know, I'm going to do what I would do if I was still working. I'm going to call Scott Baxter, who is an instructor out of Bell Helicopter. And Scott's going to know who the chief pilot is here. And he's going to have his cell phone because that's the way the Bell world is. Bell Helicopter, you want to know something, you call the Bell Flight School. And if they know you, and you know, I've gone there for 41 years or 43 years every year they know bob mcmahon <laughs> baxter's gonna but scott baxter he's gonna tell me who is in charge at collier county so he says oh you're in luck it's this guy dennis you may have even worked with he's retired out of new york city and he's a great guy and he says he'll take your call here's his number so of course he doesn't answer which doesn't surprise me because he doesn't know me and i leave a message and i say hey Dennis, Bob McMahon, Delaware State Police, got your number from Scott Baxter. Look, I don't want to be a pain in the neck about this, but the light is out on the crane behind my development. And I actually give them the coordinates and everything, you know, because I know how to get coordinates, GPS yep. coordinates. So I give him all the information. Three, four days later, lights back on. I said, wow, man, that's results. He didn't even call me back. That's really good results. So about two, three months go by and I get this call. Hey, uh, yeah, Bob, this is Dennis. And he says his last name, it's like an Italian name. I, I forget it now. I've got it in my phone. But I'm... And he says, yeah, I, I just saw where you called. Uh, what's up? What do you need? 
I said, Dennis, that was three months ago. I said, you're just getting back to me now? And he says, he says, well, you know, it's been pretty busy with the storm. And I said, Dennis, I was a cop. I understand. I know where you're coming from. All right. You don't have to sugarcoat it for me. And uh, I said, look, I gave you credit for the light bulb, even even though obviously they just started to switch back on and nobody nobody realized the switch was off. I said, so. Oh, that's great. Thanks a lot. It's really nice of you to call back. And he goes, well, let's do lunch sometime. I said, oh yeah, let's do lunch sometime. Yeah, give me a call when you're ready. And so, you know, that's the way it is when you retire. You retire, hey, you did a great job. Now go away. <laughs> That's the way it is. And, and, you know, I don't take offense of that. I don't. Uh, so That's funny. Uh, I like that. So anyway, I made some other notes for you here. And uh, I know you said I get to talk about things I want to talk about. Whatever you want another, to talk about. Yeah. Well, I do, I do have another rescue. That's that's kind of interesting. It's also a little tragic. Um, but it's not really so much about me. And, and, and that's kind of cool because... I don't want it to be all about me, 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 right? Um, For the record, are, this is that's the majority of us. That's why I <laughs> love doing this because no, <laughs> not of the majority of us don't. It's not about us. It's just, it's right. just not. And I it's I not. have to I have to pull it out of guys. Now I'm gonna do it to you. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. But no, I'm well, I, I'm this, this one particular one is actually one of the first rescues that comes to mind when I think about the new paramedic program, which are, and I say new, it started in 1985. Um, that's when we actually went, took a trip to Arizona, Arizona DPS, and they were the only ones we could find at the time who were operating a state police aircraft with a medic on board. And we copied their program. Um, so again, I give Arizona credit for that. I know they've since, had some issues. I don't know if they're back with paramedics on board or not, but they're a great organization and they actually fly a 429, which is also interesting. Um, but this is one of the first, the, the medic involved in this was a guy named Kevin Wilson. And, it, and I know it was one of his first flights. Now, by that time, I'd already been flying three or four years. And like I had told you before, I, I had originally been flying by myself uh, and a real quick insert there what we would do when we did medevacs is we would pick a nurse up at the hospital or we would pick a paramedic up from a city and take them with us but other than that we were by ourselves uh, so in this particular case i've got a partner and he is the paramedic he's a state police paramedic uh, his name's kevin wilson and we're flying we're out flying around just uh having fun and they call us it was a rough day at the indian river inlet which is like any inlet between the ocean and a bay, it was rough. And it had many, many times when, yeah, it might be peaceful for an hour, but then 15 minutes later, it's, you know, it's killing, right? Uh, it, and on this day, it did. It, uh, a grand, two grandparents, uh, grandmother, grandfather, were taking two of their grandchildren out on a boat and they got swamped and the one baby uh, they were young. I think they were about five. To this day, it's never been found. It's never surfaced. Oh. And, and this is 1986. Um, so 
we get called to go down for a capsized boat. We don't know that the there's two babies on board. Um, the, and the, the odd thing was the babies were not wearing life jackets. The parents, the grandparents were. So the the boat is, oh. is upside down. The, the last report is the boat is upside down. The grandparents, then they, the two adults, they don't say grandparents, the two adults are, are out floating with life jackets on. And there's a, re, a report that there may be two children stuck in the boat. Well, the one child, I know you know how currents work. One child apparently sank and went out and was just never seen again. The other one was stuck up under the bow of the boat and the boat had drifted about well, maybe four miles north of the inlet in the ocean. Um, and we were actually flying past it when we saw a, uh, we didn't see the, the bow of the boat. We saw another boat, which turned out to be a Denrec boat. Now, that would be the natural police, the uh, environmental police. And okay. he, they do all the marine rescue and they do all the police work on the water. Um, so he had been there and he, I don't know how he did it. And this is rough surf right off of the beach. He dives out of his boat. He's by himself. He goes underneath the capsized boat and only the, the pointed bow is showing. Gets up in there, pulls this baby out, gets back in his boat with the baby and is drifting in the ocean doing CPR when we fly over. And oh I said, my God. I said to um, uh, Kevin, I said, Kevin, you know, we're three miles away from our destination. And I said, that's the boat right there. And, and he says, yeah, he says, make a circle. So we circle and it's high tide. We have very little beach to land on. We land on the beach. Um, Kevin says, Bob, you're going to have to help me on this. And the boat with the, the, the Denrec officer doing the CPR is probably about 20 yards, 25 yards off of the beach, right behind the breakers. And the breakers are kind of coming up underneath our rotor system. Uh, it's, it's a very tight situation. The guy runs the boat up onto the beach, brand new boat. And um, he's, later we were talking, he scuffed his paint all up, but you know, I mean, that's not, that's not important. Uh, Kevin tries to grab the baby, the way, you know, the waves are breaking over the boat. Um, and I realized, man, they got a problem because this, this guy, the Denrec officer, he's exhausted. He can barely get out of the boat. And when he gets out of the boat, he's going in the water. And so I leave the helicopter running. I get out. I run over and I grab this kid. Uh, the two of us bring the kid up under the rotor system and we're doing CPR on the kid. And the kid throws up in my mouth and tasted oh. like tacos, tasted, tasted like Doritos. I said tacos. I meant Doritos. Um, I've still got my helmet on. I, I've still got my helmet on. I'm soaking wet. I've got sand all over me because, you know, think about this. Go out in the water in a flight suit, wearing a helmet, and run back on the beach and lay down and do CPR on a feet, you know? So think about it. Sugar what you look cookie. Like. Yeah, you look like a donut, right? Yeah. Totally. Yeah. yeah. So, so, we haven't been able to talk to anybody because we should have, but we didn't tell them we saw this guy. So nobody knows that we've landed. And now, I mean, in a perfect world, we should have told them, but 
we were rushed. Nobody knew we were on the beach. Nobody knew we were doing CPR. Uh, in the meantime, somebody calls the police, calls the hospital, something, somebody sees this, and they tell the police what's going on. The, they, the police are calling us on the radio. Well, we're not, we're not answering. You know, you're not, we're not in a helicopter. helicter. Yeah, we're, we're <laughs> busy. Just turn, right? turn it over there. Yeah, uh, it's still running. Oh my yeah. gosh. People are seeing this. So we, I say to the guy, I said to the Denrick guy, who's barely, you know, he can barely breathe. He's, he's so out of it. I said, I said look, we're going to take this kid to the hospital. We got to leave you here. And he said, I said, but I'll come back and get you if you want. He says, no, no, I'll be all right. You know, he's like only in his 20s. So he's going to recover. You know, and um, so we put the kid in the helicopter, we start flying, and nobody knows we're coming. And I can't get on the radio because my mic is crusted with, with sand. I can't talk to anybody. So I said, well, screw it. You know, there's not going to be an ambulance when we get to the hospital. In this particular hospital, you had to have an ambulance at a remote helipad to drive you to the hospital ER. So I'm thinking to myself, well, I ain't going to waste that time. And nobody knows we're coming. I'm landing in front of the ER. That's it. I'm going to land in a parking spot right next to the ER. So I, I like, again, I told you, I look like an, an encrusted donut, right? And I can't talk to anybody on the radio. Nobody knows we're coming. For some reason, and I never could figure this out, somebody got word to the parents of this baby, not the grandparents, the parents of this baby that we were bringing them to the hospital. Now, I don't know how that happened, but that's who met me at the helipad, the parents. And the kid is already dead, but we're doing everything we can to bring it back. You know, we're, we, you can't bring back a dead person, but we're trying. And I land the helicopter in front of the hospital. There's no security cops. They don't know we're coming. We got to get this kid inside. He's doing the, the patting the baby, you know, for the heart, trying to bring it back. I'm doing the breathing. Leave the helicopter running. It's sitting out there running, running in the parking space. Go inside. Finally hand the kid over to somebody. And the grandparents, not the grandparents, the parents are standing right there. And it was just tragic. It was oh my unbelievably tragic. So we go back out. We put the helicopter out on the helipad, spend about the next, I don't know, hour trying to clean it up. It was a mess. And uh, that particular incident, about two years later, the, there was a lot of lawsuits out of that incident. And, and I don't know why, but there was an insurance payout and the father used the insurance money to buy a Corvette. And the this was all in the news. And the wife and the father got, uh, this uh, the baby that died. They got divorced and the father drove his Corvette down to the inlet, committed suicide. Oh my gosh. Yeah. And so, I mean, that's that's kind of a a downer. It's it's, But it's the kind of things that you, uh, as a as a police officer, as a fireman, you know, you get involved in these things, and you don't know where they're going, and it's so. 
again, that's that's number two. And number three gets a little happier. Okay. Brings you back to brings you back to <laughs> to happiness. This happened at the Indian River Inlet also. And um can't remember. Yes, I can. I can remember. I was working with a medic and we got a call for a um a diver in distress on a dive boat just off of Indian River Inlet, uh, CPR being performed. So we fly down there, which is from where we were to Georgetown Airport is maybe a 10 minute flight. By the time we get there, the paramedic unit is sitting in the parking lot uh, of the inlet. And they're hoping that the boat is going to bring the dive victim to them. But it turns out that the dive boat is 12 miles offshore. Now, nobody's included that in the original dispatch. Um, and the thing about this is we were very good. If it was offshore, it was in the water, we always called the Indian River Coast Guard Station. Always. Didn't matter. Because they had boats. Uh, they, they had Atlantic City Air Station uh, on the other end of the hotline. Um, but they didn't have paramedics. They had swimmers. They yep. didn't have paramedics. Um, so what we did, we landed uh, when we saw the paramedic, who was a, he was six foot seven paramedic. His name was Lars. Think about that. Six foot seven in a <laughs> L3. Okay. I don't know if you know what an L3 is, but an L3 I, is a, I, I do, a but you got, you got to tell everybody yeah. else. because they're It's not, a they two-bladed, it's a two-bladed extended jet ranger. And, uh, it's a tiny helicopter. <laughs> it's a small helicopter. It's one engine, and it's not designed to go 12 miles offshore. So it's also not designed to hold somebody at six eight. <laughs> <laughs> and my medic was this guy, Paul Anthony, who Paul Anthony is just you could literally maybe maybe someday I'll write a book about the good Paul because Paul <laughs> is just an un unbelievable character, unbelievable. And uh, Paul says, he says, um, well, what are we going to do? He says, there's a guy out there in cardiac arrest, 12 miles offshore. Now, we don't know 12 miles. We just know he's out there. This 12-mile bit, we learned that later after we did this. So I said, well, we'll take a vote. Lars, you want to go out there? Lars, yeah, he's the, he's the six foot seven guy. Yeah, I'm ready. And uh, Paul says, I ain't sitting here while that guy's out there dying. He says, let's go. And I said, okay. I said, all I got to do is fly. You guys are the ones going to do something interesting when we get out there. <laughs> so we fly out there and we'll find the boat. And up top, circling, is a Coast Guard dolphin. Now, they've just put their swimmer onto this boat. And I'm talking to the Coast Guard guy. And I said, is your swimmer a paramedic? And they said, no. And I said, do you know, are they doing CPR? and have they been doing CPR? Said, yeah, it's witness CPR. They've been doing CPR and they feel that there's an opportunity if we can get a paramedic to them, they think that they can help this guy. It's, you know, it's 50-50, but they think they can help. And I said to, to Lars and to Paul, I said, you guys hear that? And they said, yeah, how are we going to get on that boat? And I said, I'm going to get you close and you're going to jump 
And oh Paul my says, God. And Paul says, <laughs> okay. Paul says, okay. And Lars says, we're going to do what? What? He says, you know how far offshore we are? And I said, it doesn't matter. You go a mile offshore in a single-ended helicopter, you can be 30 miles offshore. There ain't no difference. I said, this thing goes in the water, it goes in the water. And uh, so Paul says, and, and the Coast Guard had a rib there. That was the interesting thing, you know, rapid inflatable boat. And I knew these guys. I'd worked with these guys a lot. And I knew if we were going to do something, if we could tell them what we were going to do, they were going to go along. They were young guys. They were aggressive. And so I said, I got on the radio, I got at 16, and I said, look, here's my plan. And, and I'm telling you, the reason this guy was in uh, cardiac arrest, it was rough. It was really rough. And he'd gotten seasick. And while he was diving, he had thrown up in his mouth and he'd aspirated. Oh. And, and so they got him back on board the boat. But it was actually so rough that the Coast Guard helicopter crew decided not to lift their swimmer back up. The swimmer was going to stay on the boat back to the inlet. And they had a Coast Guard station at the end. Um, so I said, here's what we're going to do. I'm going to get right up to your rib. And Paul is going to jump right. He's going to plant himself right on the side of the rib, catching. And they said, okay. And, and so Paul says, man, this ought to be something. And he says, what, when did you think this up? And I said, come on, Paul, you can do this. And Paul was a real athlete. And he says, okay, well, when does my... When does my medic bag and when does my uh, monitor, when does the cardiac monitor get lowered down to them? How, how are we doing that? And I said, oh, yeah, I hadn't thought of that. I said, okay, I'll get right over the top of the center of the boat. You drop it in the bow. And he goes, well, what if it misses? I says, hey, Paul, don't miss. And sure <laughs> enough, he dropped, he dropped them right in, the, right in the bow of that rib. And I thought, God, could you imagine if it went right through the bottom of the rib and the rib sank? <laughs> But that didn't happen. So, so oh I had to goodness. make it was so rough, and that rib was going up and down, up and down. I had to make three passes just to get the equipment into the boat. So now I've got the Paul. I said, "Okay, buddy, you're up now. Go join your equipment." And uh, we pull up alongside, and boom, he's out of there. Just dives for that rib hits that thing like as it's going up, hits it, center mass. And the two Coast Guard guys grab him and they pull him in. And I thought, damn, that worked good. So I look over my shoulder and keep in mind, the door is open in the back and the door's open in the front. And I've literally got water rolling through the aircraft from waves that have hit the aircraft. And so I back up and I said, and I look over my shoulder now, I'm a little bit higher. And later, the Coast Guard helicopter pilot says, he says, oh, my God. He says, I watched this and I thought you guys, he said, I couldn't think what you were going to do next. He says, you just kept doing stupider and stupider stuff. And I said, <laughs> I said well, I said, you got to understand, we, we were just doing the best we could. And um, so oh, I say, gosh. now I, I go to Lars. I said, I said, Lars, you're next. He goes, I'm not doing that. And I said, well, then you're riding back with me. And he says, I can't do that. I can't abandon the patient. I said, then you're jumping out. I said, what are you doing, Lars? We ain't got a lot of time here. And he goes, all right, I'll jump out. 
So he's in the back. He's six foot seven. I come around and I said, now, Lars, what I'm going to do when I want you to jump, because I'm going to be watching the, the rib come up, down, up and down, up and down. I'm going to swing my head to the right, like just like this. I'm going to swing my head to the right and you're going to jump. That's the signal because I can't, you know, I can't do anything with my hands and I can't depend on you hearing me. You watch my head and you jump and you'll hit that thing just like Paul did. Well, the first time, because I had to do three passes to get Lars out of the aircraft. The first time he forgot to take his seatbelt off. And <laughs> that didn't work. The next time we went around and I just, the next time I, I went around and I must have swung my head four times, almost broke my neck. And I said, are you going to jump or what? And I said, I have given you the signal four times. And I, and he didn't answer. And I look back and he, he's just standing there and he's scared to death. And I said, I can't hold this hover anymore. So I go around a fourth time. I say, Lars, I'm yelling at you. Lars, are you going to go or not? And he goes, I'm, I'm going to go. I'm going to go. And sure enough, he does. And he misses that boat and he just goes right underneath he goes right under the water and he's gone and i'm thinking oh my god we just lost this guy and he pops back up and those two coast guard guys grab him and uh, and this guy weighs like 300 pounds he's big you know six foot seven they pull him in there their adrenaline is pumping so i realized well later i realized one he hadn't unplugged his headset so that was hanging outside the aircraft. He lost his radio, which was a $1,200 radio, his Motorola. He oh, lost his gosh. radio. He lost his pager. He lost his stethoscope. He lost all his equipment, right? But anyway, I, I, my aircraft is now 400 pounds lighter because Paul is gone and big Lars is gone. So we got... I hope I'm not going into too much detail, but no, I, I want the detail. Please keep the details coming. This is great. I, I go around again and I watch. I don't leave until I see that the rib has taken these guys over to the boat, the dive boat, put them on, and I'm watching them do CPR and I'm watching Paul hook up the monitor. And and I know he's gonna shock him, he's gonna give they're gonna give him IVs. And, so this is the best chance this guy has of survival. He didn't survive, he died. Um, but I get on the radio now and I call the captain of the fishing boat and I said, and now keep in mind, my back door's open, my co-pilot door's open and it's windier than hell. And the, the waves have, have broken into the aircraft a couple of times. There's just water floating through the floor of the aircraft. And, uh, I said, uh, okay, I'm going to go back to the Coast Guard station. Because uh, there's nothing else I can do. I'm, I'm done. I'm spent. I go back to the Coast Guard station. I land. I spend about an hour cleaning the aircraft up. And it took an hour for them to get back in from the wow. incident. Um, and um, so I, uh, I walk down. I meet the boat. And uh, the, the Coast Guard guy, Paul and Lars, Continue, continued doing CPR all the way to the dock. That's a lot of Dang. that's a lot of CPR. That, that, that's, that's a lot, lot of CPR. 
they were bagging the guy, uh, they put him on an ambulance, went to the hospital, and he died. But once again, we felt we had done everything we could. Now, to end that story, about two months later, we hear through the grapevine that Lars has been busted and fined and made to pay for his radios. And we go to, Paul and I, we go to the uh, paramedic office and we met with the head of the uh, paramedics, his supervisor. And we, we laid out the case. We said, you know, this is total injustice. He, I, we understand he lost the page. We understand he lost the, the equipment, but he was doing it with the best of intention. And he was actually very brave. What he did was, was extremely brave because, you know, we fly in helicopters every day. He doesn't, he rides around in a truck. Plus he's six foot seven and he's a big guy. And he showed a tremendous amount of bravery. Um, we think you should reverse this. And you know, to his credit, the the guy in charge did. He reversed it. Oh, he nice. gave him back. He gave him back his correct rank. He gave him didn't make him pay for the equipment, and they gave him a, a, an award. Um, you know, some little pin that you wear. And Lars was really, really happy. And he, you know, I don't know how many years ago it was, but let's just say it was thirty years. I, I don't know if that's true. Could have been twenty-five, whatever. But I just yesterday saw where the paramedics in Sussex County opened up a new building. And there was Lars standing there holding the flag. He's still a medic. He's still six foot seven. He still weighs close to 300 pounds. And if I were to walk up to him tomorrow, he would look at me and he would go, oh, stay away. I don't want to go on any more helicopters. But um, yeah, you know, it's just the thing. You, you meet people under really stressful situations and you you find out what they're made of you know you yeah and i'm not saying that what we did you know maybe if the state police was you know a little different maybe we would have been busted you know because yeah. you can tear that thing apart on so many safety levels oh god so yeah but it's yeah. hilarious and, and i love it oh yeah yeah <laughs> but it in in reality before they before they had risk assessment, you know, this was how we did risk assessment. You know, okay, Lars, are you in? Paul, you in? Bob, you in? Yeah, we're all in. All right, that's our risk assessment. Let's go. Uh, you know, and and again, you have to when you talk about risk assessment from the point of view uh, of helicopters yeah it's very important it's and i taught this shit you know this it was my job to teach young guys risk assessment right right yeah and it's it's almost like okay don't do what i do but you know <laughs> you you know that a young guy especially a young guy with a fireman's mentality is going to go to the nth degree to save a life that's that's the big trophy the big trophy is saving a life and you know, you do stupid stuff getting there. And I, I would venture to say the last fireman that went out on a call in New York City this morning forgot to do his risk assessment. And 
you know, forget quite often. That's and I, that's I, I the can't guy I'm I, admitting that right now. That's the guy I want coming to my house. Yeah, I don't want the guy who takes time to do his risk assessment. And uh, and, and again, I'm not saying when, when you're a pilot, your whole life should be risk assessment. You know, you yeah. should be you should show no. up for work knowing if you're going to fly. Well, there, there's a perspective here. So this is a conversation, and I like this conversation. And there's, like, at any point in time, so anybody that's listening, none of us are going out there to go in harm's way or intentionally do something stupid. Like, that's, and if you're, if that's what you're thinking right now, you're, you're not really, you're not tracking, right? I'm all about it. Now, at the same time, one of the things that I like to say, and I, I will purely speak about me, my uh, pucker factor or my risk, I, I'm willing to go a little further than a lot of people. There are a lot of people that are like, hell no, I'm not going to do that. Either it's scary to them, they're not comfortable, whatever the case may be. For me personally, I'm good with it. Hey, you want to hang me 200 feet off a waterfall hanging like on a rope that you're not really sure of? Cool. I mean, my wife would be like, I, I'm thinking about divorcing you right now. And that, that was that's a true story, by the way. <laughs> she ought to stick well, around for the insurance. Right? And she does, <laughs> God bless her. <laughs> but for that aspect, so let me bring it to you. You are you're comfortable in an area. So you get to a point where you're just comfortable. It's okay. Where other people are like, you're crazy. And I love it. So yeah. Well, I can tell you. I have met my, I have met my, uh, let's say wall, a wall that I wouldn't go beyond. And, and I recognized it immediately. It was, it was, and it, it really, it is actually a testament to how brave Navy pilots and uh, Coast Guard pilots are in that we were sent uh, on a mission down to the beach and, and Delaware is surrounded by water. So there's a really good opportunity. Any call you go on, you're going to be near the water or over it or, or in it. And um, this one particular night, they saw flares off of the coast and they called us and there were no stars. It was a dark night. And um, I decided I was going to go out and look for the a boat in distress, thinking, you know, you couldn't be more than a mile offshore, which, again, I've already said this in a single engine helicopter, a mile offshore, you might as well be 14 miles offshore, you know, because <laughs> you ain't gliding back, you know. <clears throat> so, um, I hit that black wall and I stopped and I turned around and I came back and I went back toward land where I could see. It was still like land that I could see over, but out over that ocean, I couldn't see anything. It was a black wall. And I sat there hovering, looking out. And I said, I can't do this. I've hit my wall. That's my wall. I can't go into that black, whatever you want to call it harass and i know coast guard and navy pilots they do they do it on a regular basis and i had hit my wall that was not not doing that I can't do it um th this is the one where we call the coast guard yeah because you know, i can't this is above my ability i can't do it so you know i i have hit my wall you know it's i recognition though but that's great because that that's part of, you know, we talked about it in a minute ago, but the risk assessment, you do yourself risk assessment. Again, some people just are willing to take a little more risk than others, not to put yourself in harm's way. It's just, you're willing to do that. 
Yeah. Yeah. And then at one point or another, you're like, nope, not gonna do that. I'm done. This is my living. Well, the other thing, <laughs> the other thing you have to keep in mind too is for me anyway, it has to be fun. If if I'm not enjoying myself, if I'm not like if this isn't part of the team sport that I want to play, then I'm not going to be there, you know, but I had so much fun and I enjoyed so much of what I did. Um, I'll give you another real quick little story, um, which is, is kind of interesting because you wouldn't find this being done today. Um, and maybe it's different because, you know, I was by myself. Maybe it's different because uh, it was a smaller aircraft, but I had a habit of if somebody asked me to do something, I was always leaning toward doing it, not not leaning toward not doing it, but leaning toward doing it. And this one particular day, I got a call that there was uh, some type of medicine that was at a hospital in Newark, New Jersey, that was needed for a kid in um, maybe Milford, Delaware, something like that. Um, and they gave me the name of the hospital and they gave me a phone number and that was about it. And this is before the internet. This is before, uh, GPS. This, this is before, uh, having people that are going to do all the work for you. It was, you know, I have to find this place on my own and I have to get this medicine. I have to get it to Milford. So I thought, well, I'm not going to waste a lot of time here. This kid needs this medicine. I'm going to fly to Newark. I'm going to find a place. So I just took off and I flew to North from, I left Dover, Delaware, flew to North. Uh, my family's from that area. So, you know, I, I'm not really like in awe of the city. It's, it's a place I grew up somewhat, you know? Um, and I figured, you know, I'm going to land in a park. And I did, I landed in a park. I got out, I shut down. Of course, the police were called, the police came over and the guy says, what are you doing? I said, do you know where this hospital is? And he says, yeah. I said, could you go there and get the medicine for me and bring it back here so I can fly it to this kid? And he says, yeah. And he takes off. He says, I'll be right back. And he comes back 10 minutes later. He hands me the medicine, get in the helicopter, and I fly back. Now, again, that's just a matter of doing what you do. It's uncomplicated. If I was in a car, I could have easily driven to Newark and gotten this. Would have taken me four more hours or, you know, five more hours. But I just figured, okay, so the helicopter's like a car, you know, and it's a fast car. And I'm going to go up there. It's a police car. I'm going to park in the park. I'm going to create some attention. I know people are going to come over to me. Perfect. So it worked. Yeah, perfect. <laughs> you know, keep it simple. But, I, you know, that was the plan the whole time. And it worked. That was the plan. Yeah, that was the plan. And it worked. What a good yeah. plan. Yeah. <laughs> oh my gosh, Bob. I love this. I love this so much. <laughs> oh, I'll keep going, bud. I really will. Well, let me tell you now, how much more time do you want to spend? I, you go, just let it ride. Let it ride. Let me just tell you, this is kind of how I got to, in a way, where I am in, in my instructing, right? And one of my close friends, I grew up with this guy, we played football together. He was in a helicopter crash and he was a state police pilot. 
and he's a quadriplegic. He's been in a wheelchair now, completely paralyzed for about 36 years. Wow. Uh, good guy, real good guy. Lives down here in Naples. He and I are, are real close. Uh, he's one of the reasons I live in Naples. And um, so when Dennis was in the accident, the colonel had said to me, um, and he, you know, the helicopter was destroyed. Two of them were hurt. Dennis uh, severed the spinal cord. He said, whatever, Colonel said, whatever this guy wants, you are responsible for getting it. He says, I don't care if you use the helicopter. I don't care if you use the airplanes. Whatever he wants while he's in rehabilitation, you take care of him. So one day I was working with a relatively new medic. And I was, you know, really, this would have been Dennis's accident was 1984. And I started flying 1982. So I was relatively still a new pilot and definitely a new instructor. And Dennis called me one night. He said, hey, I've got this thing and um, you've got the other thing. Uh, we were talking about computers. He says, could you deliver this to me so that I can use it? And I said, yeah, I can do that. Um, you know, I said, where are you? And so he, he told me, well, I didn't, we didn't have internet. So we did check the weather. You know, we would call the 1-800 number and check weather. But the weather wasn't as accurate as it is now with the internet. Uh, so I checked the weather and the weather looked like it was good. Um, and I took off on this mission to deliver this thing to Dennis. And um, about, I was up around Ellendale. So Ellendale's about maybe 10 miles from the airport. We flew into the fog and, and it was a heavy, thick layer. So I had been taught by really good army pilots that when you fly into the fog, you climb and you climb until you're out of the fog and don't stop climbing. We were at 10,000 feet when we got out of the fog. Oh my 10, gosh. 10,000 feet. Now I have never heard of it. It's called inadvertent IMC recovery. And again, I'm not saying I'm the only guy that's ever done this, but I never heard anybody tell a story where they went inadvertent IMC and they did what they were told and they climbed and they didn't stop climbing until 10,000 feet. So I did. This is what we did. We got at 10,000 feet. Now in the route, through the fog and the clouds and everything, um, I called Dover Air Force Base and I said, hey, I went into Burton IMC, need, a, need an instrument clearance, and I'd like to come to Dover and do the ILS. And uh, the guy says, okay. He says, what, what altitude do you want? And I said, well, um, I'd like to get out of the clouds. And he says, well, we have aircraft C-5s holding to do the ILS and they're at 10,000 feet and the tops are right below them. And I said, all right, well, I'll climb to 10,000 feet. So, you know, we're in a, I think then we were in an L4. I don't, I don't know, but I'm pretty sure this is pretty early. I don't, and Dennis had crashed the jet ranger. So I wasn't in the jet ranger. So I'm pretty sure I'm in an L3 or L4. So here we are, we're up there in holding with three C5s at 10,000 feet. And I was loving it. I mean, really, I was just loving it. I thought, this is so cool, you know? And guy gives me sequencing. I do the ILS at about 200 feet, maybe just a little above that, we break out. And I've got the runway right in front of me. And the controller says, clear to land. And now I'm talking to the tower. And I said, do you mind if I do a, uh, a break off here, go over to Route 13 and fly up 13 to our headquarters? The guy says, hey, 
I don't care what you do. Yeah, you want to do that? Go ahead. So, because really for helicopter, the rule is clear of clouds. And yeah. here I am at, I'm at 250, 300 feet. And I'm, I'm clear of clouds. And I can see the road and everything's fine. So I go over to that hangar and land and deliver this thing to the hangar. Because I decided I'm not going any further north. Because, you know, the further north I go, it might even get worse. At least I had 200 and a half here, you know. Yeah. And uh, so that was about maybe the second second or third time I'd gone inadvertent IMC, but it was the first time I'd gotten that high climbing. And I decided that I was going to start teaching people recovery from IMC, but even more important, I was going to try and teach them to avoid it. I was going to try and teach them to avoid flying in bad weather. Um, and that became a commitment to me that I, I continued through my 41 years, I taught and learned quite a bit. I, I did one year flying for uh, Air Methods. And I found out, again, Army pilots. Air Methods, is are, they are Army pilots. Now, I don't know if you're familiar with Air Methods, but they yeah. are the, they're the largest operator of helicopters in the world. Uh, and wow. I think that even includes, I think that may include the United States Army, but I'm not sure. But Air Methods is a big organization. Even if I'm wrong with that, they're humongous. They're huge. And they're mostly Army pilots, you know, that have gotten okay. out of the Army and they want to. And they had uh, inadvertent IMC policies in their aircraft. And um, again, I credit it back to Fort Rutger, really. All this kind of stuff stems from Fort Rutger. And I was taught by people from Fort Rutger. You know, so, you know, that's why I did it the way I did it. But I wanted to make sure that the people that learned from me learned this method of recovery. And um, also, I wanted them to learn. And, and I get in a little bit of trouble even now with some of the retired guys. I had a rule. And, and people were very much allowed to break my rule. They didn't have to follow my rule. But my rule was if the temperature dew point is four degrees and decreasing, you don't fly. And so okay. many guys, that would keep them out of it, right, if they paid attention to it. Um, but many guys would say, yeah, but what if it's four degrees spread decreasing and clear as a bell and it never gets foggy? I said, well, that's going to be the exception. And it's going to be the one time that people are going to look at you and say you're not a very good pilot because you won't fly in clear weather uh but you're just gonna have to suck it up because that's the rule and uh, and you know people break the rules all the time yeah. yeah i watched i watched several of them right in my presence take off into the fog so you know yeah those guys okay quinny you're starting to look tired now no I'm, no, I'm not. No, I'm not. No, I'm not. No, 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 no. I'm in. I'm in. I'm still in. <laughs> I'll tell you what. You know what? Let, let's bring it into um, something else that I wanted to talk about with you. And that is like you being an instructor and now seeing your students and what they're doing. And one of the things I, I the reason I want to talk about this is because I like this as well. I've I've been blessed with working with Priority One A Rescue. Actually, let me back up for that. In the Coast Guard, I was an instructor. I was a flight board examiner, so FEB, totally stoked. I loved doing it. Uh, I was an instructor with P1. 
I was an instructor with uh, my last job. Uh, I'm an instructor with SR3 Rescue Concepts now. Um, and I'm currently an instructor with another helicopter company that I'm working with. So like, I love doing it. And to watch your students do it. And then you're hearing stories of like actual rescues and the, what they're doing in the field. And you're like, oh, yes. Yeah. So tag your in. I have to say, I share, I share your passion for that. And uh, I have to say that, of course, the, the one, I would say, the big success for Bob, um, I taught my son how to fly. And um, oh yes, that's awesome. And I taught, and I taught my daughter how to fly. Um, <laughs> I was their mother. Their mother was a pilot, and I was always um, certain that one. I I I used the, the teaching my daughter how to fly as a tool for her to have a better self awareness as a teenager. Um, you know, young young girls when they're teenagers. A lot of times they have a, a self-esteem problem or, you know, they, you know, whatever. It's it's a cruel world to be a teenager. Um, so I used flying as a way to get her self-esteem raised. And she was a good pilot. She did a good job. Um, she went on to be a nurse and, and she's a mother and they run a small farm. Um, but my son, he took it to heart. He currently flies for FedEx. Um, and he has Long two time. or three. Oh yeah, and he has two or three small companies where he buys and sells airplanes. And so, again, when I talk about being an instructor and looking at the results of my teaching, you know, you can't really do much more for your son than you know create the uh, career that he's going to have. And so it's, that's a big, that's a big win for me. You know, I really like that. But then I go even further in that some of the guys that I taught when they, you know, I taught a lot of people how to fly. When we would go like one, I remember this, and you've flown with this one guy, Mark Spence. Um, Mark is one of the, the better pilots uh, that I've ever taught. He's extremely talented. And, uh, and he's a good hunter and he's a good fisherman too. Um, we, we were out somewhere getting something to eat or something. And the, the guy says, uh, well, to Mark, he says, oh, and what's your father going to have? And uh, I said, I'm not his father. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, I had a lot of relationships with my students that almost were father-son, you know. And I'm very proud of those guys. And, you know, you see them do a rescue. You see them do a hoist. Um, you see them do something in their life that's successful. And you think, I had a part in that. You know, I helped them. I helped them get yeah. there. Yeah. And so I think one of the big, big successes in my teaching is Alex, my son. He was writing something, and I just happened to be reading it. He's very... He's very active in the aviation world. And he said, one of my, the joys I have in my career is passing on my knowledge to other people. And I thought, wow, I really got to him, you know? 
he's a he's a success in my eyes. He's sharing his knowledge, and that's really what a good instructor does. They they share their knowledge, and then they watch their student grow. Because yeah. really, I, so many of my students were better pilots than I was. You know, I I, I just like. I was in amazement. Like sometimes I would think, I don't think I could have done that. You know, there was this, this one guy and um, we were getting ready to put Bob Watson and Will onto uh, a ferry in Delaware. And actually what we were putting Will onto the ferry and Bob was going to be the SO because it was going to be tricky. It was a, a little systems operator. It's a hoist operator just, for everybody that doesn't just, know that. So 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 Bob was going to operate the hoist and Will was going to go down. And then we were going to, he was going to jump off this ferry, pretty good sized ferry, Cape May Lewis ferry. And we were going to pick him up and we were going to put him on the uh, small boat, the pilot boat. And, and that was pretty tricky because I watched this from another helicopter. And we also filmed it from that helicopter. Um, and um, we were talking about, you know, who was going to be the pilot. And well, I said, well, naturally, it's going to be Dave. Dave's our best pilot. And I want to make sure that Bob is the best pilot we have. And Dave was one of my students. And I had absolutely no qualms in saying, I'm not doing it, but I'll certainly let Dave do it because I know he can do it. And that is kind of rewarding. You know, one, you get to sit back and watch. And two, <laughs> you get to know that it's being done by a quality guy. And yeah. he was one of my students. So I was really proud of that. Yeah. Yeah. Super good feeling. I love it. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Wonderful feeling. Yeah. I, so, I, wow, hope, look at I you know, the other thing that I really like is when you go in, you teach a, a guy or a couple of guys or an agency or whatever it is, and, and then they come back and they end up giving you feedback about like, hey, you should try this, this, and this, because this seems to work better. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, why didn't I think of that? And then you turn around and then you end up passing that knowledge on. And that's where I, I love that too. Just, yeah. You know, who was really good at that was New York. The, yeah. the, the New York guys, they were really good at taking what they were taught and taking it to the next level and refining it and saying, well, how about if we had this? And uh, one of my things that, that I really enjoyed when we first started in the rescue business. And I made this, I made this note. And it actually, I would think you'd be pretty aware of this, but then again, I don't know. Cause you know, the older I get, the younger you guys get, the more I think, you know, they may not know what I'm talking about. So when, when we first started flying, we were flying jet rangers. And the whole idea was basically, we don't know what this thing can do. And we're pretty much going to try everything, you know, no matter what it is. If somebody says, can you do this? We're going to kind of say, yeah, we can do that. And so then I remember this guy, Tommy Robbins, real good pilot. And there was a boat in trouble. And he went out and he threw the boat. He's in a jet ranger and he throws the boat a rope and he tows the boat to shore. Now I've seen a video of a guy try this and the helicopter goes over and into the boat. Yeah. I but, know the video well. <laughs> right. So what I'm getting at is, you know, we didn't have the we didn't have the proper equipment to do some of the stuff we were trying to do. And, and then Air Florida comes along. 
Now, I don't know if you remember Air Florida, but Air Florida was a Washington, D.C., crashes into the Potomac on an icy day, and the U.S. Park Police in an L3 go out and they rescue a woman stewardess out of the ice. The airplane is sunk in the ice, and they do a tremendous job of getting a rope with a life preserver to her, and they drag her to shore. It's probably one of the most dramatic things in my early years of flying that I ever saw. Really good, all over the press, really good. And I wound up actually going to Bell Helicopter with one of the pilots. I went to school with him there. Um, and actually, we were on a roller coaster at Six Flags, and we were upside down, and his teeth dropped out. He caught him like that. And I said, wow, you have fake teeth? And he says, yeah. He says, I was a Vietnam pilot, and I got shot in the mouth, you know. And I said, and you're the Air Florida pilot? And he says, well, he says, you know, it's all in a day's work. And uh, <laughs> but after after Air Florida, everybody started carrying a life ring in the jet range. Everybody with a rope attached. And from that point on, it progressed. The next helicopter we got, we got a cargo hook. And we started doing, you know, short haul, long haul. We started doing rappel mount hauls. We did all kinds of things that we made up. And then one day we bought a 407. And the, pilot and the captain who's very forward thinking says you want to hoist for it and you know they had a three three hundred pound hoist for the 407 yeah. and uh, uh i said yeah yeah get a hoist for it you know and then we did some hoist rescues you know with the with the 407 and and then you know so to me why i bring it up is those guys from air florida those Vietnam era pilots, they're the ones that see every, everybody knows the Coast Guard has hoist. But I mean, in reality, you guys didn't start doing swimmers until pretty late. I think it was yeah, in the 1984. 80s, right? Yeah. Yeah. Like the yeah. first. Yes. Yeah, now that's they were doing late. hoist before that. They, I mean, they had right. a hoist on the helicopter because they were doing basket rescues and sometimes they'd take the extra crew members to send them down. But for the Coast Guard rescue swimmers, 1984 is when it started. Right. And, and so, you can see this as, as I'm pointing out in, in Air Florida had to be probably 1982, something like that. Um, right around there, right? Because that's when I started flying and it was pretty, I was pretty new when it happened. Um, but it's just been a, a progression from there. Like the next aircraft, it just, the, instead of seating five people, it seats seven, you know? And then, then you wind up, instead of seating seven, you're seating 12 in the 412, you know? And then the 412's got this huge hoist on it. And then you have to have uh, professional people tell you how to use it. And that's how we got up with Richard Maggs. Uh, actually, Mag Air. I wrote his name down because on my helmet, I always had a skull and crossbones with Mags on it because he was a good guy. And he was the first guy that I met that taught me how to hoist. That's cool. I, you know what? For the record, I never met Mags. He was already passed away uh, when I joined yeah. P1. So I, unfortunately, I, I I wish I could say I had met him. Um, prior Navy SEAL, he, I, I don't remember what he passed away. He was UDT. Okay. He was actually UDT, which was the start ah. of the Navy SEALs. But I okay. don't think they called him SEALs when he was there. Um, and and I had All the I know is he was a badass. That's what right. everybody I had, has said. <laughs> 
I had the privilege of swimming with him and he told us stories and they were good stories. You know, he was, he was a badass. Going into the <laughs> caves in Hawaii, you know, then you have a Craig Traveris, you know, uh, those Hawaii guys. Uh, yep. Yeah. Good group of yeah, guys a, all the way around. What a, we had, we what had an a amazing door. crew. <laughs> yeah. What a door that opened up for me, you know, the people I met. Yeah. Uh, I'll oh, mention me one too. more. Yeah. Uh, I'll mention one more thing. And, and because one of your readers may see this and we might, might remind them of something pretty cool. And that when I got done with the state police, I worked for Summit. I told you that. Well, Summit does a lot of secret squirrel stuff. And I worked there for 15 years and the chief pilot, actually the chief mechanic, he told me many years ago, he said, no pictures and you never talk about anything you see here or anybody that you meet here. But this guy I can talk about. When, when you told me you were going to do this podcast, I, I, wanted to, uh, I wanted to mention Mark Bagama because Mark Bagamo was one of, I think in Black Hawk Down, I think there were six aircraft. I'm not sure. But Mark Bagamo was one of the pilots in Black Hawk Down. And he was, he was very well known. If you remember, one of the pilots was captured and they brought him home. And I, used, I read the book and I used to know the guy's name, but Mark was the one that actually took possession from the... Um, a terrorist or whatever you want to call him. And he actually brought this guy home. He was, he was a great guy. And I met Bergamo at Summit um, because Summit is full of these type of Black Hawk down pilots. There's, they're everywhere. SEAL Team 6 has their maintenance done there. So you see these very interesting people walking around. And there's, you know, we did contracts for a company called Pegasus. And we did some really cool stuff. But anyway, one day I was eating lunch with Bergamo and, and I'm kind of dropping names here, but I'm not, I'm not really trying to impress anybody. I'm just trying to, he says, he says, man, I, I'm, I'm not feeling good. He says, I'm going to the doctor tomorrow. He says, I won't be in. And I lost, I kind of lost contact with him, you know, but, and then about two months later, it turned out he had pancreatic cancer. That's what he was going to the doctor for. And uh, okay. so so yesterday, I um, I looked up Mark because I wanted to mention his name, and I wanted to say you know something about him because he was a tremendous special ops pilot, unbelievable guy. He could fly any aircraft in the world, and did flew everything the Russians made, everything anybody made, and um, there was his obituary, and so it was the first I knew that he died, and. Uh, what a, you should see, write that name down. Okay. Mark, Ber, Mark Bergamo, B-E-R-G-A-M-O, B-E-R-G-A-M-O. Got it. And I just, I wanted to kind of, just like we gave a shout out to Bob Watson. I'm sure Mark is sitting up there watching me yapping. And I think he probably has a smile on his face because I'm the one that kept, one time they say, take Mark out. This guy's the best pilot in the world. They say, take Mark out and show him your aircraft because you're not going to be here tomorrow and let him do the test runs on it. We're talking about a 412 that 
I think it was Pegasus own. And uh, I'm going through the, I'm not using a checklist. I, I would start these aircraft 30 times a day. And so I'm, I'm not using a checklist and I leave the fuel valves off and I'm, and I'm talking, you know, and, and this is what you do, Mark, and this is what you're doing. And then you do this. Well, I didn't know, but he already, had, he had like 5,000 hours in this aircraft, you know, under fire, you know, being <laughs> shot at. And, and here I'm, I'm talking through this and we go to, you know, to roll the, the throttle on and nothing, you know, and he goes, you know, that's why I use a checklist. And, uh, <laughs> I said, oh, okay. I said, you got me. And then I learned this guy, this guy was one of the greatest pilots in, in special forces that, you know, you could come up with. And here I'm showing him how to start an aircraft with the fuel valves off. So, you know, we, I don't care how many hours you have, you can screw up. <laughs> oh, that's so funny. I like that. Yeah. <laughs> Bob, this has been an absolute treat for me. Thank you so much for joining me. Um, I do have one more question, and and it's kind of what I like to end with everybody. And you know, you I get forty one years of all this stuff, flying, teaching, rescue work. If you had some advice you would pass on to everybody that's out there now, coming up or in it, what would it be? Have you ever watched how Elon Musk? When they ask him a question, he sits there and he thinks before he answers. Yes. You know, he's very intelligent. He really is. He's really good. And, you know, I, I honestly think the, the best answer is that if you're not having fun and you're not enjoying it, don't do it. I don't care what it is, you know. Um, you've got to get to a point in your life where you do what you want to do and you do it because you want to do it. And if you're not enjoying it, find something else to do. And I can honestly say that I've enjoyed every minute of one, being a cop, two, being a volunteer fireman, and three, being a pilot. And I'm very, very proud of my students. You know, I, th I think that's the best way I can put it. And, you know, emulating Elon Musk while I do it. That's, that's really good. That was well, like well, a nice well, little name drop there, too. <laughs> <laughs> Bob, I, I truly mean it when I say this. This has been an absolute pleasure. I cannot thank you enough for coming on and just sharing some stories and, and some dropping some knowledge for us. So thank you. Well, thank you. Good. I'm looking, I'm looking forward to seeing how good your editing is. <laughs> yeah. It's uh I you know what you'll have to let me know because nobody nobody said anything so far. So I, I think I'm doing all right. <laughs> uh you know, if I make it down to Florida, I will go out and grab a beer, sit down. Right. Uh, maybe we maybe we can call Dennis and give him a hard time. Yeah. He's down yeah. And be like, yeah. yeah. So that'll right. be about the time I hear that'll be about the time I hear from Dennis. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Uh Thank you again, and I promise I'll be in touch. It'll be good. All right, great, great. And with See that, you, ladies and gentlemen, later, we are out of <laughs> here. Thank you for tuning in. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Real Rescue Podcast. Please take a minute to like, subscribe, and hit that share button. I'm pulling chocks and taking off. 
But before I go, if anyone out there has a rescue story they would be willing to share, I would be humbled and honored to have you on as a guest. Or if you have any questions about rescue or anything else we talk about here, send an email to jason at therealrescue.com. That's jason at T-H-E-R-E-A-L-R-E-S-Q.com. You can also check us out on our webpages, therealrescue.com, our Facebook page, and our Instagram page, at The Real Rescue. Again, a special thank you to all of you standing on the watch today. Always remember, when that star alarm goes off, those in distress are praying for a miracle. They are going to get you. Until next time, fly safe and swim hard. <laughs>